Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is our 509th show of ROI. And our guest for today's show is Lanisha Cassell. Executive Director of the African American Museum of Iowa, and we're going to be talking about the mission and vision of the African American Museum of Iowa. Our second segment will be joined by our history buffs, Brett Menard and Ed Broders. So to start with, welcome to the show, Lanisha. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. We are excited. So our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is just to give our listeners some background to the to today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on how the African American Museum of Iowa got created? Absolutely. So firstly, it's kind of interesting because um, most people who hear about the museum who are not in Iowa, or even some who are here, think that it, should, it was in, it's in Des Moines. And they often ask us why it's in Cedar Rapids. And the main reason is because the, uh, member, the founding members uh, were a part of a local assembly, Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church, here in Cedar Rapids. And so that's why it's here in Cedar Rapids. And it was uh, started in 1993. So that means we are in our 30th year this year. So that's our 30th anniversary. Um, and it, the church provided us meeting space and money to launch the organization back then in 1993. Um, and so the current facility that we're in right now was built in 2003, uh, and we are um, undergoing a renovation project right now. Uh, the museum uh, is responsible for uh, providing uh, educational resources, um, original exhibitions, uh, and preserving history, of course, for the African-American communities of Iowa, and that's what we've been doing for the last 30 years. Can you kind of give our listeners, where are you? Give us an address or, you know, where do we get off the interstate in order to get there? Gotcha. So when we reopen, we are in the uh, Nubo and Czech District, which uh, is at 5512th Avenue Southeast. Um, we are very close to the Czech Museum. We're actually neighbors and we do a lot of programming together. So you will find us in the historic Nubo Czech District. And that's how I right, and that's how I knew about about the museum was that I am a frequent visitor to the Czech Museum. I love that place, and I just happened to go out a different way than I came in and saw your your museum there. So, what kind of of outreach programs and things like that uh, are you doing so that people know about this very cool museum that I'm not sure many Iowans have heard about? Agreed. I think that's been some of the things that we've been trying to work toward right now while we're closed. But in general, uh, we have, like I said, our original um, exhibits every year that change. So we we do an annual changing exhibit. And we have a permanent exhibit called Endless Possibilities, uh, which explores uh, the West African slave trade uh, to Iowa. And then uh, once you get through that part of the, the foundational history, then the most of the permanent exhibit is all about Iowa uh, African-American history. Um, and then in terms of some of the other resources that we provide, uh, we do programs and presentations on-site and off-site. We have tours of the facility, particularly with student groups, college groups, and uh, uh, grade school um, as well. And then other community organizations will often bring uh, groups in for tours. Um, we also have um, uh, virtual programming, which was uh, already something that we were doing before the pandemic, but of course that method of uh, of uh, of delivery increased during the pandemic, and of course we have definitely adapted to that by making sure that we have um, uh, access in other communities outside of Cedar Rapids and Lynn County. Um, flash forward to right this very moment, and we have a, um, a very large non-traditional exhibit that's traveling all over the state um, in addition to its installation here in Cedar Rapids at the Downtown Public Library. 
Okay, so I am. We have a lot of museums from mm-hmm. uh, Iowa and Illinois and really across the country on this show, and I'm endlessly fascinated about how museums get exhibits, develop exhibits, house um, artifacts. Uh, you know, all of that kind of thing. So can you t- kind of talk us through what kinds of, if I, when, when the, uh, when the museum opens, what kinds of really interesting things should I be looking for? And then what kinds of things are, are not out front, but are part of the okay. museum's collection? Sure. So when we reopen, it'll be interesting. We'll be doing an exhibit that's about really kind of the memory, going down the memory lane because of the renovation project. We'll be doing simultaneous exhibits. Um, uh, the one that we're doing right before we open will be in partnership with the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, and it'll be on black artists. So that's in progress right now in development stages. Um, and then when we reopen just a few, um, just a couple months later, we'll have um, an exhibit that basically explores our past exhibits. Um, and some of the really cool artifacts that I know about, um, there's, there's a vast amount of them. Um, we have a lot of um, uh, papers, photographs, and um, uh, um, um, Gosh, um, actual items like, let's see, I'm trying to think of something that's really cool. I think something that fascinated me was hearing a little bit more about um, African-American influence um, of golf here in the state. And I can't tell you all the exact stories, but we have a golf club um, that belonged to um, a, a gentleman who learned to golf by um, as, a, as, as he worked for an employer who was a golfer. He was not allowed to golf on the course that he was near, but he, his employer allowed him to golf um, on, a, on a course he developed and designed. Um, and so I thought it was really cool that we had his golf club um, here in, in, uh, at the museum. And so there's so many stories like that. Uh, I can't even count how many there are. A few years back, we had an exhibit called um, If These Objects Could Talk, and that was a way for us to be able to bring items out of the, uh, out of the collection that don't always go on display. You know, so many people make contributions of, of, of items, but if it doesn't fit a particular theme that we're working on at that time, it doesn't always get to be on display right away. And so that was a great opportunity for us to be able to bring um, some of the items out. All right. Well, we have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KLA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. The KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Lanisha Cassell, Executive Director of the African American Museum of Iowa, and we're talking about the mission and vision of the African American Museum of Iowa. Our history buffs today are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. And Ed, as the only current Iowan of the group, why don't you start us off? <laughs> I think I think Lanish is also an Iowan here. But right. anyway, um, one of the things that I think about when I think of Cedar Rapids, particularly the Nubo area, is what happened in 2008. I don't know if you were at the museum at that time, but can you tell us a little bit 
uh, how that affected your institution and, you know, did you get a lot of stuff out and save it or did you lose a lot? Thank you. That's a great question. So I wasn't at the museum uh, myself, um, but I was in Cedar Rapids. So um, I do know that um, the museum took on about five and a half feet of water. Um, We were closed for several months for repair and rebuild. Uh, We were able to get a significant amount of uh, of our collection out, but of course there were some things we weren't able to to move, uh, which actually caused us to rethink when when we were redesigning our um, permanent exhibit ways that we could construct the new exhibit in a manner that would allow us to be able to move things a lot easier in the event that we had another flood. Um, so uh, we opened our doors back up in 2009, and the community was very generous in terms of um, contributions to help us with some of the things to need to be done uh, that, you know, that maybe insurance didn't cover. So um, we, we definitely um, took on water and had to, to do some things. But I think there are other institutions that suffered a lot worse than we did at the time. Brett. So I'll ask the obvious question. Um, why do we need an African-American history museum? What are other museums not covering that you do? Sure. Well, that's a great question. So I would start off by saying that, you know, our motto here internally and externally is that, you know, um, uh, African-American history is also American history. Um, Why do we need it? There is a gap with what the traditional education uh, system provides in terms of, um, you know, educational foundation, content, um, you know, things that have not been sanitized, things like that. So our, our role, our goal is to share the full story, and that's not often uh, available in other, at other institutions. And uh, because Iowa does have a rich African-American history, uh, you know, so much so that we're able to start a museum and that it's still here 30 years later. So, um, and then particularly in uh, 2020, uh, after the murder of George Floyd, I think so many people had their eyes opened and we were getting a lot of outreach um, wanting people wanting to get our resources and to find out how they can uh, be a voice, be an ally, um, and be able to um, help us move forward our mission, but also help um, our our state and our country move forward in a different way um, that was able to embrace um, all cultures. So there definitely is a need for what we what we provide. So I'm wondering along those lines. Then give us a couple of stories, pieces of information, whatever, um, that, that the museum offers that the average Iowan would not be aware of, uh, but should be. Well, there's some, there's some hot, um, um, stories I think that, um, are always, um, pieces that people walk away who didn't, if they didn't know, they were surprised. Um, so one would be the story of Buxton. Um, I don't know if all of you know that story, but, uh, Buxton, Iowa was a coal, mining uh, town that was um, that was around the end of um, the 1800s, early 1900s, um, and was pretty much gone by 1930 uh, because the industry changes. But um, in that town, it was integrated. It was fully integrated way before the nation was integrated. Um, it was so isolated. Uh, well, let me back up. Um, integrated, and not just people were living in the same town, but like working together, going to school together, making the same wages. There were doctors and lawyers that were African-American and white, um, and they were so isolated that when the African-American residents moved out of Buxton, when, when things dried, when the coal mining kind of dried up and they had to go to different locations across the state, they were not expecting the reception they received. They didn't know what was happening outside of, of Buxton. Uh, so it was quite an eye-opener to uh, to be in this isolated community. They almost uh, There's been books written about it, and they've been called the um, Black Utopia. 
Um, so that's one story that a lot of people um, are not familiar with and certainly wouldn't get that at school. Um, and then let's see, some other, some other story. I think people are still shocked to know that there's still KKK um, mm-hmm. all over the country, and uh, including in Iowa. And so when we had uh, um, uh, Hood and um, other people uh, pieces uh, on display a few years ago, uh, there was, you know, a lot, of, a lot of different reactions to that. So we are able to share things that um, people aren't expecting or don't know or are become enlightened about. Okay. Ed? Um, yeah, can you tell us about your, uh, I guess, your permanent collection? I assume you're still getting things in, and um, where, where does it come from? So, okay, so we, we aren't getting things in right this very moment, but before we close, we were. But we, because we're closed for renovation, we aren't accepting things. But we have um, items that come from a number of places. It could be someone who lives down the street whose grandma just passed away and they're cleaning out their house and they find things in the attic that they want to donate. Um, or somebody who took a trip to um, Western Africa, which is where our story starts, and they have things that they want to donate either for us to sell in our gift shop or for us to have in our collection. Um, and so we, and I've had people call us from out of state who found something at a thrift shop and they thought, oh, I wonder if there's something that you might, you know, want. Um, so there's, uh, there's, very, uh, very, um, there's various scenarios. Uh, one, that we might accept something because it fits our mission. Others that we might say this might be a better fit for the History Center or for African American Museum in another state where they might have found the item. Uh, or, um, you know, is it authentic? And, you know, they might not know where it came from or what it is, but they think it fits. So there's a lot of ways we, we come across items that come into our collection, and we don't always accept everything. Um, and we have some clear guidelines on how we make those decisions. And, and everything you receive is donated, or does the museum buy certain artifacts? Uh, we don't typically buy artifacts. We might, we might purchase something for an exhibit that we are planning. Um, we might borrow something from another institution uh, or buy something to, um, to help us uh, recreate something uh, in an exhibit that maybe we don't have an artifact for, uh, but we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, people can't come in and sell us their items. We've had, we people come in and try a lot, but we don't, we don't buy them. That's not part of our, that's not part of what we do. <laughs> not part of the mission. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Fair enough. And we don't have that kind of budget either, so. Right, right. Brett. So you talked about the um, display you had a while back with, um, like a clan hood, how do you go about contextualizing these very controversial um, objects? And how do you go about teaching hard history that some people might prefer not be remembered? Sure. Uh, well, I was so the curator. Too bad the curator isn't on because you know her role is to 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 make that happen, and of course our educator as well. Um, but I would say we try to stick to facts, you know, and, and um, leave out. You know, obviously we tell authentic stories, people's stories, and and about what their experiences. But when we put things out there like that, um, you know, we try to you know this is where it's from, this is what year it represents, you know, that type of thing. Um, I will tell you an interesting story around that. Uh, we had a group um, come from. I believe it was Waterloo, and it was an African-American group. Um, and there were two women who were in the group who were friends, like they grew up together. May have even been sisters, I can't remember, but they were close. Um, they both had two very different reactions to the KKK hood. One of them said, I don't think that should be here. I want to talk to your curator. Why is I here? That is not a part of my history. The other one said, that is absolutely part of our history. We can't forget. Um, it still exists. We have to be reminded so that we won't do it again. You know, that kind of thing. And so it was interesting having two African-American women, same age, 
grew up together have vastly different reactions to that history. Um, and in terms of how we um, present and educate, you know, we have, we, we take into consideration age um, and, um, you know, um, comprehension and things like that when we're, when we're teaching. We, when we rely on school teachers to help with debriefing because, you know, a field trip will last for, you know, an hour, maybe two, and then they go back to their classroom and do they get any additional follow-up afterwards. So we're very conscious of uh, making sure that, excuse me, we consider who our audience is. Um, but, I, you know, but I don't like to shy away from hard, from hard information. I mean, people did live what we're sharing. So, um, but there's definitely a way to be able to educate people without traumatizing. You, you, you try anyway. Right. Well, and you, so you mentioned something earlier I'd like to kind of follow up on, which is, um, again, because we do so much museum work, um, there, it, it endlessly amazes me at how much interaction and cooperation there is between museums and across to different groups in terms of sharing information and artifacts and creating exhibits for each other and all of those kinds of things. Can you talk a little bit about who um, who you work with, the kinds of groups or, or museums or organizations? Are they state level? Are there any, is there anything happening at the national level that you've been involved in? How, does, how do those interrelationships uh, work for you guys? Well, one thing that I think is a common thread among most museums is that we belong to, you know, many different museum associations, particularly Midwest or African American or state. And so that's one way that we're able to, you know, um, collaborate. But we definitely collaborate with our local um, institutions. There's five museums in Cedar Rapids, including the African American Museum. And so those are often, you know, easy, easy um, uh, collaborations because they're, they're neighbors. Um, sometimes it's even practical. Like, they, uh, like we talked about earlier, the Czech Museum is right next door. And field trip um, funding has gone down drastically over the years. And oftentimes school districts allow like one or two field trips for the whole year. And so we partner with the Czech Museum because they're so close. And sometimes we'll have large groups. They'll split. Half will go to the Czech Museum. Half will come to the African American Museum. And then they'll have a lunch break and swap. And, 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 swap. and so that's been effective. So they can actually, you know, not spend quite as much money and be able to get uh, the benefit of being able to um, get resources from both institutions. Uh, we've partnered with, um, you know, the University of Iowa uh, and several other uh, institutions of higher education for not just bringing um, programming to them or sharing program uh, ideas and um, content, but also um, working with um, student groups. For instance, we work with the uh, with uh, TIPI um, Business School part of University of Iowa to um, help one of their classes with uh, doing an, like an, uh, an organizational audit. So that we allowed them to come and interview us and to uh, learn more about what we do and our history and all of that to kind of be able to um, use it as a model for one of their, for one of their classes. Um, so we do a lot of that kind of thing. We also have a very robust internship program with local institutions of higher education as well. Okay. Ed. Yes. Um when you get new items in for the collection, whether that's a you know a document or an artifact, um, do you have people on staff that uh, can research the history of those items, or perhaps expand on you know if you get a written document in or something like that, or do you farm that out? So it depends. If we're if we're specifically you know 
soliciting stuff for for stuff, archives, artifacts for uh, an exhibit, you know, we, we'll do a little bit more. Um, but if someone just comes in, you know, and says, hey, I have this thing, um, and if they don't have their own authentic, authentication, we don't, we don't authenticate. But we do recommend if people are really wanting to find out more about something that they have, we'll send them to the State Historical Society. Um, the archives at the University of Iowa has a, a great uh, department and um, research folks there. So we do have a list, you know, of people that we can, um, uh, when you say you farm out, if you will, to, to make sure that people get what they're looking for. Um, uh, we do research for, like I said earlier, we do the research for the items that we are using for our own exhibits. Okay. Brett. You talked about um, some of the interactions you have with, like, field trips. Um, are there any um, concerns or challenges you faced with some of the divisive concept uh, laws that are being passed as far as uh, field trips being a harder sell or getting some more pushback? You know, that's a good question. I don't feel like we have experienced that yet. And then, of course, you know, we, we've been closed for a little while, too. But I don't feel like that has necessarily happened, at least not for, the, not for that particular reason. It seems like it's really more to do with budget cuts because uh, we have had, you know, we, we saw in, uh, during the pandemic, you know, of course, we weren't having that. But as things to get, started to loosen up, we were getting the requests. So I don't feel like that has been a deterrent at this point. Um, yet, um, I do think it's definitely part of the conversations that we have internally um, uh, and in the community. Um, you know, we don't have to, um, we are not subject to the same rules and regulations that the school district is. So maybe it might be they're out, you know, or they're in, if you will, to be able to have the, um, the educational resources for their students without uh, being punished for it in the, if they were doing it themselves in the school if that makes sense. So, um, and as a matter of fact, I've just written an article, uh, a guest column for the Gazette, talking about that a little bit, that's running this weekend. So uh, we haven't necessarily that I can see face that, uh, but I think that it actually is an opportunity for some of the, some of the teachers and uh, district leaders to be able to, uh, to have that content shared if they want to without the, the um, reprimands they might get if they try to do it themselves. Okay. Um, I'm curious Several years ago, we did a show um, on um, a organization that was collecting um, oral histories of uh, of African American Iowans, mm -hmm. and I was wondering because I can't now, and I didn't have a chance to go digging deep enough um, into our archives to to find out what what that organization was. Um, are you familiar with anything like that? Or are you uh, also trying to do those kinds of preservation activities? Um, because we know generations, as, as generations turn over, we lose mm -hmm. a great deal of, of the archival and, and the, particularly the, the, the stories, the, the, the textualized stories that, that make history come alive. How are you guys working to, to, work to, to make that a, a little better process? So I, I agree with you, um, and something it's, it's so interesting. You know, there will be there will be individuals that we have kind of earmarked internally. We need to meet with those people. Time is running out, and you know, sometimes you miss opportunities, and other times you're able to to capture their story uh, before they before they're gone. Um, the project you're talking about, I feel like there's multiple projects like that happening. Sometimes they're a sure. state thing. Sometimes it's a 
college or university um, project, um, and we definitely have done those ourselves. Before I came to the museum, I believe, I don't think we've had a, a robust um, oral history project um, since I've been here, and it's seven years this year. Um, I will say that we have tons of oral histories that still need to be um, edited and transcribed um, that just you know lack resources to be able to do that, human capacity, really, um, to be able to do that. But it is um, something that's always on our minds, something that we're always talking about, and that when we do have opportunities to have interns who can tackle less, you know, less critical, you know, sometimes we're always, you know, we need this intern to do this specific project because that's happening now. Um, those are things that we like to, um, to give our interns uh, opportunities to, um, to do, is to conduct those oral histories. Uh, the ones we do have, there's several that are on our website, and then we have a, some of them there in, inside the museum when it's open. We have an oral history nook. So that's something that's definitely that's um, cool. important to us, and we, we try our best to be able to, um, to tackle some of those when we, when we can. Excellent. Well, it's customary that we give our guests the last word on our show. So, Lanisha, uh, why do you think knowing about the African American Museum of Iowa is relevant in today's world? I think it's relevant because I think oftentimes uh, we don't really know the full story. And I think it's relevant because uh, when you come to the African American Museum of Iowa, um, expecting whatever it is your expectations are, I think you can be surprised in a pleasant way. And I think you can learn something that might allow you to see things from a different perspective. So I encourage everyone who uh, lives in Iowa or, who, or who's coming through Iowa to make a visit at the African American Museum of Iowa. And, and I would do that as well. Um, we have a couple of uh, minutes here, so I'm going to let my our history buffs jump in on that question as well. Ed, why do you think knowing about a museum, uh, an African American history museum, is a relevant thing? Because it's something that um, those of us here in the room, at least, never heard about growing up and in our educational background. We never heard about it. Um, you know, the closest we came was that at some point, Dred Scott lived in Iowa, and that was the end of it. So there's a lot there's a lot to be learned, and there's always something to be said for not repeating the mistakes of the past. Brett, what do you think? Well, uh, so I think that our guest made a very good point that you know it's different when a museum has a focus on a particular uh, ethnic group because it really allows the deeper uh, history of that group to get uh, told. And I doubt <laughs> there are quite as many uh, potential pushbacks for a, a field trip group going to the Czech and Slovak Museum as there might be going to the African American uh, Museum. Uh, and just as a historian, the hardest history, um, the history that people don't want taught is really the the most important history to teach and the other value of this museum is so often um, because you're trying to force three years of history into nine months of classes mm -hmm. you you only get to do superficial uh, interactions with um, some pieces of history and so it a lot of times in american history classes you focus on the repression of african americans instead of their contributions and their joy and this museum because it, it focuses on them really gives the opportunity for that fuller picture 
Well, huzzah to everyone there. I agree with all of those statements. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 509th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Lanisha Cassell, Executive Director of the African American Museum of Iowa. We've been talking about the mission and vision of the African American Museum of Iowa. Our history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We'd like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotza Pula Nala, Peace, Reign, and Prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.